Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ray Bradbury, are you a science fiction writer? No, I'm not. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, that takes three hours. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? I wrote a sequel to the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs about the planet Mars. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Edgar Rice Burroughs. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Uh, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? No, I can't say anyway, no. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Because, because it's important. It's important to me. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? It is that difficult. It's very easy for me. Does it get any easier? No, then take a telegraph. It's very easy. Describe your daily work and day. I get up and throw up and clean up at noon. What is the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? I can't answer that. I don't know. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Because it helps people think about the future. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? No, I love it. I love it, yeah. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I don't know that. Bria Bradbury, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 242. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Bit of a sad times, what's happening in the science fiction world, as you know. And just play that little interview that I did with a great man, Ray Bradbury. Unfortunately, he passed away this week. He was just, do you know what I mean? When I got the chance, when Larry kind of set all this up, when I got the chance to interview Ray Bradbury, I honestly couldn't believe it. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, wow. And, you know, I've got two minutes worth there, but... You, you can't, you know, that's just gold dust, you know. So that was my little tribute to Ray Bradbury. If anyone hasn't or anyone doesn't know, you know, like in the works of Bradbury, I picked up Dandelion Wine 
when when I first started, you know, kind of me reading, and I'm sure everyone knows by now. I was, you know, I I, I didn't really pick up reading until I was quite, a, you know, in, in a fair old age. You know, I'm sure I was somewhere around about 22 year old, and it was just staggering. Do you know what I mean? When I kind of when I actually did start reading, do you know what I mean? It just, the kind of the walls came tumbling down. But then I discovered Ray Bradbury and that dandelion wine, and that just took us on a road that just you never forget, do you know what I mean? It was just, and I've still got that same paperback book and that same cover, and it means so much, do you know what I mean? It's like just memories there of, of the way he created his world. And then, you know, you just you go on from there and like the Martian Chronicles and everything like that. So, at fair old age, do you know what I mean? Give him his dues. He's kind of, he's outshone most of the, the kind of writers who, you know, I admire and everything like that. So, but it, with this passing, you know, you do get a kind of little sense of nostalgia and, a, you know, so thoughts and everything go out to Ray Bradbury and his family and friends, you know, and Larry as well. Larry's kind of choked up with it. He was a good friend when Ray Bradbury, because apparently Larry was saying he never really flew or he didn't fly until late on in his life. And that's when Larry got to know him as well, you know. So, and again, heads up to Larry for putting us in touch with Ray Bradbury and for doing that interview when I put the phone down, you know, because I'm really calling call from Skype, but when I disconnected that line, and I just, honestly, I just sat there, do you know what I mean? There's, there's not many times now, you know, you kind of, you, you speak to all of them, you know, and it's great, do you know what I mean? And like I say, Jack Vance and, you know, Frederick Paul, they, you know, still there, kind of, wow. But when I put the, you know, cut the connection on Skype, I just kind of sat there for a few minutes and just thought, yeah, just got to be kidding us, right? I've just spoken to Ray Bradbury, the guy himself. You know, you got Obama giving it like a talk to about you know about him when when Ray Bradbury died, and I just couldn't believe it. Do you know what I mean? So I hope you enjoyed that little you know going back. That was I think it was from show one hundred and forty five, which was you know oodles of time ago, but it was when we we're doing those you know one or when I was doing those kind of questions as well. And you think he's a bit of, well, I guess he might have been a bit of a cantankerous old goat, you know what I mean, in, in, his, in his age. But right at the end, okay, thank you, yeah, yeah. But that, I think, comes out, you know, like the kind of true guy, Ray Bradbury. Yes, he gets asked them questions all the time. And I love it, mind you, <laughs> when you ask him about his science fiction writer. Oh, he's heckles, you know, he heckles guys straight up there. So that was cool as well. <laughs> So, I think we should jump into today's show, tell you what's coming on. Kicking straight off, we have another legend right up there, you know, one of the greats. We've got a two-part serial by Kid Wilhelm, The Birdcage. Then we have, fact article, Theatre of the Mind, our good friend Paul Finch. Then right at the end, there's a little promo, chemo, how I learned to kill. So that is today's show. I hope you stick around and enjoy it. Just before we get into part one of Kate Wilhelm's story, big thank you to everyone that turned up for the Narrator's Workshop. Staggering show, do you know what I mean? It was kind of, I was chuffed a bit with it, to be quite honest. They are a kind of nerve-wracking thing, but it went fine. So a big thank you to everyone that kind of turned up for that. It means a lot to us. Thank you so much. And if you want to narrate, you know, do drop us a line, Starship's over. We've got lots of, lots of stories now. Those are stories, so please come over, drop us a line, starshipsover at gmail.com. So, The Birdcage by Kate Wilhelm. 
I'll give you a little heads up who Kate Wilhelm is. If you don't know, my, hey, listen, you need to know. Now, it was Kieran that actually got me into Kate's work. And the, the first book I read, or the first book that kind of introduces to Kate Wilhelm, was Where Late the Sweet Bird Sang. And it just, it, it is up there. Do you know what I mean? It's like top five books that I've ever read kind of thing. Yes, comes a close, you know, Joe Haldeman's Forever Wars there and Flowers for Algernon. But this one, if you haven't read this story, this is just, and what's good about this story, the writing is just gorgeous. Do you know what I mean? And I actually listened to it on audiobook as well. Like, see, I do most of me reading or listening through, you know, the audiobooks. And it was just fantastic. Where Later the Sweet Bird Sang came out in 1976. And it's just been up for, you know, it was up for Oodles Awards. And it won the, the best for Hugo Award, best novel, 1977. It won the Logos Paul Award for best science fiction novel, first place. Won the Nebula Award, and it came third in the John W. Campbell Award. Do you know what I mean? Please get a hold of this copy. I'll read Kate's biography from from our site, and you'll get a, like a little feel for you know where she's come from, what what she's doing. Kate Wilhelm's first novel was a mystery published in 1963. She's recently returned to writing mysteries with her Barbara Holloway novels. Over the span of her career, her writing has crossed over the genres of science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy and magic realism, psychological suspense, comic and family sagas. Her works have been adapted for television, movies in the United States, England and Germany. Wilhelm's novels and stories have been translated to more than a dozen languages. She has contributed to Quark, Orbit, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Locus, Amazing Stories, Asimov Science Fiction, Ellery Queen's Mystery, Fantastic, Omi, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Red Book. Kate and her husband, or late husband, Damien Knight, who died in 2002, provided invaluable assistance to numerous other writers over the years. Their teaching careers covered a span of several decades and hundreds of students, many of whom are famous names in the field in their own rights today. Listen, get this, they helped establish Clarion Writers Workshop and the Milford Writers Conference. You know, it's in, in a way, it's almost scary to have Kate on the show, you know, in my eyes, she's massive. Do you know what I mean? One of the kind of the, the biggest writers out there. And I'm so, so chuffed to bits that we've got one of Kate's stories on. And it's been, honestly, a bit of an ambition since kind of we started running these stories. You know, me reading that book where well, late the sweet bird sang. I just wanted to get one of Kate's stories, but it was, I just couldn't get in touch with her, you know. And then, you know, along comes Facebook and Kate's actually on there now as well. So I'll, there'll be links on to all the shows, you know, all the kind of guests who have got on. But do pop over there and have a look. There's actually good things just starting to kick off now as well around Kate's books and short stories. Infinity Box Press, which is was created by Kate and her sons, Richard and John. And Richard's wife, Sue. And Sue, big thank you to you. It's Sue that's been kind of organising all this and getting it all, you know, pulled together for us. Sue, I, honestly, I, I kind of thank you enough. And Sue was telling us that they've, they've kind of they've set up this Infinity Box Press, just a way of getting kind of, you know, not being kind of governed by the kind of big publishing houses out there. You know, it's a way to get, you know, direct to the writer and to just to get it out there without having them mean buggers <laughs> get their cuts and just demanding all sorts of, you know, restraints on it. 
So there's a link. The, the Infinity Box Press isn't actually up yet. There is a link there to the site where I'll put on. But when that becomes available, when the site comes up, you know, you'll be able to get all the ebooks from there and everything like that. Now, I'm not too sure if you can get, you know, the one I like. Or, God, they're all there. Try and get them. I'll, I'll find out from Sue. But I will keep you informed. Like I say, we're going to play part two of this story next week as well. So, you know, do look out for it. Like I say, this story came about or was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, January, February 2011. And I've seen Kate's work in there for, you know, a few years there now. And it's just trying to get in touch. But like I said, you know, somehow I managed. So, uh, Sue, a big thank you. This story is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. And there was only one person I wanted to kind of, you know, narrate this story. Again, big thank you to Amy. I'll put a link on the Amy's site as well. We've got some news regarding our very own Amy H. Sturgis, which will be coming soon. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Birdcage by Kate Wilhelm. Grace Wooten stood at a wide window facing outward, seeing little of the vista before her, groundskeepers going about their work, and beyond them, steel bars with half a dozen chimpanzees going about their own day on the other side. At a nearby window, Edward Markham was also gazing out. She knew without looking that his hands were shaking, his head jerking now and again in a spasmodic motion he could not control. It took an effort to keep her own hands from clenching as she waited for him to speak, to respond to her report. Dr. Wooten, he said finally, swinging around from the window, you don't have six more months to try any new parameters. I know what that means. New parameters, new tests, new waiting periods, new analyses, new tests. The answer is no. He had started off in a relatively mild tone, but his voice rose even as it quavered. I'm 53 years old, Dr. Wooten. I watched my father die of Parkinson's. I saw my brother die, and I have no intention of dying from it. You're going to suspend this goddamn disease until they come up with the cure. First, it was gene therapy, and that didn't work. Drugs don't work. Now they promise stem cell research will do it. And the years go by. I don't have years. You have two weeks. I can't proceed before I know what those anomalous brain waves mean, she said. We're working around the clock here, trying to analyze our data, but it takes time. Those goddamn monkeys can't tell you what you want to know. How many brains have you examined? What did they tell you? Nothing. You won't get a thing from them. You need a person. Someone you can wake up and ask questions. Someone who can tell you what it was like. Those monkeys out there just act like all the others. No change. No lasting effects. Nothing happened to them. That's all you need to know. Nothing happened. We did find differences in those we sacrificed, she said. Her mouth felt dry. The word sounded raspy. We agreed to wait at least two years to see if a change in behavior occurs. Brain trauma sometimes requires a period of time to manifest in overt behavioral changes. It has been only 13 months for two of the subjects. 
And then you'll want two years to wait to test the new parameters. Then two more. Dr. Wooten, I don't have that kind of time. I hauled you out of a scruffy university laboratory where you had a few horny students to help, underfunded all the way, forever begging for pennies. I haven't denied you anything. Not a goddamn single thing you said you need. More assistants, more lab space, more computers, the monkey compound, more monkeys. It's time for a human experiment. Tomorrow I intend to stop all my medications, prepare myself exactly the way you said I'd have to. I've taken care of the business and legal matters already. Between now and two weeks from now, get a volunteer. Put him under for a week and ask him questions when you bring him out. And get ready to treat me. You get that? Two weeks. I've explained why I can't find a volunteer just like that, she said. It's illegal to... You'll do it, or I'll bring in someone who will, he yelled. I'll get you a volunteer. You just be ready to start on him when he gets here. Dr. Wooten, understand this. All this is mine. Mine alone. You work for me, and I can fire you faster than you can blink. You'll do it, or someone else will. Immobilized, she stood at the window and watched his lurching walk to the door. When it closed behind him, she moved to her desk and sank down into her chair, staring at her spacious office, the handsome furnishings, pale wood, pale green cushions, coffee table. A door at the side of her office opened, and Dale Sumner entered, carrying a bottle and two glasses. "'You heard?' she asked. "'Every word. Ugly bastard. Mean as they come. Let's have a drink.' He poured scotch into a glass and handed it to her, pulled a chair closer to her desk and sat down, then poured a second glass. "'Cheers,' he said before taking a long drink. She sipped her own and put the glass down. "'He's deteriorated a lot in the past month,' she said in a low voice. "'He's terrified.' "'Grace, how long's it been? Six and a half years?' Sixteen she said. Not from when you started, just here in paradise. Six and a half years. I've been working with you for twelve. Time flies. Walk out, Grace. Leave it. You don't need any more of his money. You haven't taken time off to spend a cent on a thing beyond the barest of necessities for the last six and a half years. You need a break, a long vacation. Now's the time. Sixteen years, she said, raising her glass. This time she took a real drink. She laughed. <laughs> you were one of those horny students, he mentioned. That I was, he said, grinning. Go home, Dale. How long has it been since you got home in time for dinner with Stacy, before Bridget was in bed? Take the day off tomorrow? Take them to the park or for a boat ride or something? Let me take you home first he said. She shook her head. I want to walk out there in our own private park for a bit. I need a little time to think. Jean Biondi glanced out from the workroom of the fabric shop, withdrew. They're still at the catalogs, she said. Dora looked up from her sewing machine and nodded. 
Bet she won't buy a thing. She'll have to think about it, take a few samples home, consult with hubby, whatever. She went back to sewing. Jean nodded, grinning. There was little for her to do in the room, but neither did she want to go out to the showroom, where she was certain that customer would beckon her to come and voice an opinion about drapery fabric. If she had a living room with a window wall to decorate, she thought, her drapes would be pale, primrose background with giant red poppies. Her grin broadened. That customer would reel. She glanced out again. She's actually leaving, she said, then waited until the door closed behind the customer before she walked out herself. Lizzie was leaning back in her high chair. Honey, she said when Jean approached, will you check and see if we have a full bolt? She scribbled the stock number on a note. Lizzie's fine fabrics did a good business, which Jean attributed as much to Lizzie's good humor and patience as to the high quality of her stock and her all-encompassing knowledge about drapes, slipcovers, curtains, everything that made a house a home, she sometimes said. She treated Jean more like a daughter than an employee. What did she finally pick? Jean asked, peering at the open samples catalog. That? That, Lizzie said with a grimace. She'll be back within a year to get something else, Jean said, shaking her head. The sample was a shiny gold brocade. A window wall that puts your eyes out guarantees a repeat customer. She reached out across the wide counter. Cody resists her nudge. You go first, he says. The pond looks different, shinier than before. They came here all the last week to slide on the ice, not far out, just near the edge. They aren't supposed to come this way after the school bus drops them off, but they do. It's very cold again after a lot of weekend rain, and they were afraid the ice might be gone. But it's still there, only different. Go on, she says. Don't be a scaredy cat. He shakes his head. I want to go home. I'm cold. You first, she yells and gives him a shove onto the ice. He tries to catch himself, but he plunges forward and the ice breaks. He screams in panic as he falls, first to his knees, then full out. She screams, too, and backs up. Cody is pulling himself out, dripping, screaming, terrified. She backs away farther as he drags himself to the bank, trying to reach for something to help get him out. His mitten keeps slipping off a rock. Now he is screaming, Mommy! Mommy! She turns and runs with his screams in her head. At home she races to her room and into the closet, shaking, freezing, crying. She has wet herself. Jean, my God, what's wrong? You're shaking like a leaf. What happened to you? Lizzie was holding her arm, and Dora was kneeling by the chair, rubbing her hand. Jean was cold, shivering, terrified. She didn't know how she had gotten to a chair, why she was sitting down with both older women there rubbing her, patting her. She couldn't stop shivering. I don't know, she mumbled. I don't know what happened. You're like ice, Lizzie said. I'll put on coffee, something hot. You're coming down with something. 
They insisted on taking her home, with Lizzie driving Jean's car, Dora following to take Lizzie back to the shop. It was a warm day, June 18th, and Jean was chilled throughout her body. Lizzie and Dora checked to make sure she had everything she might need and hovered until Jean begged them to leave. I don't know what that was all about, she said, but I'm fine, really fine, and I won't go out or anything for the rest of the day just to make sure it isn't the flu or something coming on. Promise. Finally alone, she thought about that day, 25 years ago, when she and Cody had been in first grade together. She didn't even know exactly where her family had lived then, out in the country somewhere, and Cody's family had lived beyond them. Where? She shook her head. She had not thought of that incident for years, maybe never after moving into Portland. But she had left him. She had run away and left him struggling to get out of the water, to get home, soaking wet in freezing weather. She felt tears of shame fill her eyes and shook her head. Only six years old, she told herself. She had been six years old, panic, terror. His screams, his terror, had overwhelmed her own, and she had not helped him, had run away. She didn't even remember his last name. Just Cody, the boy who lived down the road, They had an orchard, an apple orchard, and strawberries. Had he caught pneumonia? Had he been injured? She didn't remember. Her family had moved to Portland that spring, before school was out. She had not thought of Cody for more than 20 years, and now she wept for him, for her cowardice, her failure to help him, and his screams of terror echoed in her head. Grace woke with a start, jerking upright so fast she felt dizzy for a moment. It passed, and she got out of bed, pulled on her robe, and went to check the monitors. Nothing had changed. She gazed at the brain wave monitor tracing gently undulating, very shallow waves where every 90 minutes there was a spike of activity that should not have been there. It wasn't rapid eye movement sleep, dreams. His eyelids remained as still as the rest of his body. Wearily, she rubbed her own eyes. It was two in the morning. She knew she didn't have to go into the room, that she would learn no more there than the monitors were recording, see nothing more than she could observe through the one-way glass. But she pulled on her coat over the robe and went into the adjoining room to gaze at the man on the waterbed that was holding steady at 45 degrees with a coverlet at the same temperature, pillow, cap on his head, all 45 degrees, room temperature 45 The man on the bed did not stir when the light came on, when she touched him. "'What's going on in your head?' she whispered. "'What's going on?' When she began to feel chilled, she returned to check all the monitors again, and then to go back to the room she was using, the room where he would sleep for another week, the regular eight-hour sleep that he had said was his custom.' It was a pleasant room with an easy chair, a good bed, a television, desk, all the comforts 
she thought bleakly, taking off the coat but not quite ready to go back to her own fractured sleep. She had trouble remembering when she'd had an uninterrupted sleep of eight hours at a stretch. Long, long ago, she murmured. Five more days, she told herself, just five more days. Then we'll both sleep the way people are meant to sleep. Trevor McCrutchen tossed in his cards, stood and stretched. Deal me out, he said. I'm going to make some nachos. Sore loser, Ezra said with a laugh as he pulled in his chips. Any beer left? Sure, in the cooler. Hal and J.D. got up and headed for the back patio and the cooler. Their monthly poker sessions, Trevor thought grinning, usually ended after an hour or so, followed by a lot of eating and drinking beer, smoking a little, and good talk. He had nachos ready to pop into the oven, then ten minutes later, out on the patio with them. He set the timer, turned to get a drink of water. "'Hey, you're not supposed to be out here with sparklers!' He yells as Cody strikes a match to light one. You little shit, they're for tomorrow night after dark, Trevor calls. He's near the barn, too far away to grab the sparkler from his brother. He starts to trot over just as Cody laughs and waves a string of firecrackers in the air, then holds one to the sparkler. Jesus, Trevor says, then yells, You've been in my stuff! I'll... Cody, throw it! Don't hold it! Toss it out on the field! Cody stands as if transfixed as the wick catches. Throw it out to the field! Trevor yells, racing toward his little brother. Cody drops the firecrackers into the dry grass at his feet, where they instantly start their explosive pops, and the grass is on fire almost as fast. Racing to him, Trevor screams for Cody to get away from the burning grass, to run into the plowed field. Trevor tackles him. Cody's jeans are burning, and now he is screaming, too. Trevor yanks him up, runs into the field, and throws his brother to the ground, rolls him in the soil, and beats on the flames with both hands, throws dirt on the jeans. They are both yelling. Cody is trying to push Trevor away, striking at him. Exhausted, the flames out. Trevor starts to shake, and Cody is sobbing. Beyond the plowed dirt, the grass fire is blazing, and their dad is there suddenly, hosing down the grass fire. Hey, Trevor, you planning on burning down the joint? Ezra walked into the kitchen. Hey, Trevor, man, what's going on? All that smoke. Trevor, snap out of it. Trevor began to shake. He coughed and backed away from the stove, nearly fell down, and Ezra grabbed his arm. Trevor! Say something. What's wrong with you? Say something. Trevor shook his head, dazed, shaking, and unsteady. Don't know, he mumbled. Don't know. Yeah, me too. Come on, sit down. You want a beer? Water? Shit, the oven! He turned off the oven and, using a kitchen mitt, pulled the burned nachos out, ran to the patio with the smoking pan, then returned with J.D. and Hal. Let's get him to a chair or something. They took him to the patio and pushed him down onto a chase. Someone put a beer in his hand, and gradually his head began to clear. The shaking stopped. A flashback or something, he said after taking a drink. 
I'm okay now. It's okay. Dude, you'd better get to a doctor. Get checked out, Ezra said. You were out like a light, standing like a statue, but out. Man, you could have burned down the whole house, and you just stood there, J.D. said. Later, alone, Trevor played the scene over and over. How frightened they had both been. Not just that, he knew. Not just that. He had felt the fire. He had felt it on his legs, burning his flesh. Cody had been burned, not seriously, but enough to hurt like hell. And he had felt it, too. One of those kid incidents that you never really forget, he thought. He had threatened to pound Cody to a pulp if he ever got into his stuff again. But it wasn't that, either. That had been an anger reaction, after fear and dread. He remembered the fear and dread. And he remembered feeling his legs burn. It was irrational, Jean kept telling herself, pacing in her small apartment. All night she had come wide awake repeatedly, replaying that scene at the pond over and over, feeling all that fear again and again, fighting a surge of guilt again and again. Irrational, she repeated. Crazy time. She had been six years old, a child, little more than a baby, and she had reacted as a child, a very young child. It was crazy after so many years to feel guilt over something she had done at that age. Children that young couldn't be held responsible for not acting as adults. She paced. The pond had been so shiny, wet. Now she knew what that meant, but she hadn't known then. Neither had Cody, but he had been afraid of it, and she had pushed him. She shook her head. Dear God, not again, she said in a low voice. It had been cold, windy, but above freezing, she knew now. But she had not known it then. He had been afraid. I want to go home. I'm cold. And she had pushed him. Wearily, she walked to the kitchen and stood at the sink. She should eat something, make coffee, do something. She didn't even know his last name. She should tell him she was sorry, she thought suddenly. Had he been haunted by that plunge through the ice, falling into the icy water? As if it had been decided for her, she knew she had to find him, tell him she was sorry. Her mother would know his name. Her mouth felt dry when she called. The banal, how's everything, taking a day off, I'm fine, all the small talk seemed a terrible effort before she could get to her question. Mom, I've been racking my brain trying to remember where we lived before we came to Portland, who our neighbors were. I know there was a strawberry field nearby, and that's about all. That was on McCrutchen Lane, out past Gresham. Why has it come up all at once? Just trying to fill in some blanks in my memory, Jean said. Was that the name of the family with the strawberries? Yes. I took you with me to pick berries when you were five. You and their little boy ate more than I got in my pail. <laughs> her mother laughed and chatted about those days until Jean said someone was at her door and disconnected. McCrutchen. Cody McCrutchen. There was no Cody McCrutchen in the phone book. No C. McCrutchen. 
Stupid, she told herself. He could be anywhere in the world. He could be back there at the orchard spraying apples or something, or in New York or L.A., anywhere. He could be in Portland using a cell phone. That night, she slept no better than the previous night, and when she turned up at the shop, Lizzie examined her closely and told her to go back home. Honey, you look like someone who isn't sleeping or eating either, probably. Take the rest of the week off. Get rid of whatever bug got hold of you. Summer flu, most likely. Watch movies or read novels for a couple of days. Get some rest. Plenty of fluids. Jean was both relieved and sorry. She was too restless to sit still, and no movie could hold her attention for more than a few minutes at a time. But neither could she have dealt with customers who dithered over curtains or blinds and chose shiny gold brocade for drapes. She had to tell him she was sorry, she told herself almost desperately, and she no longer could know if it was for his sake or her own. She knew it was obsessive, compulsive, irrational, but she had to tell him. Maybe then that scene would stop playing in her head. Maybe then his screams would stop sounding in her head. Maybe then she could sleep. Trevor eyed a frozen chicken cacciatore with loathing before putting it in the microwave. Since the incident with the nachos, he was almost afraid to light the gas stove. Not almost, he thought derisively. Scared shitless. If he'd been alone, would he have set his house on fire? As far as work went, he should have just called in sick. Maybe he was catching something. Maybe he really was sick. Out, asleep, or something for more than ten minutes. That business with the firecrackers. God, what had that been about? Why now? Cody had thought Trevor had been beating him, not beating out the fire, but beating him up for getting them in the first place. And fire burning his legs. His hands had been burned, not his legs. But he had felt his legs burning. He shook his head, tried to shake that day away, back out of memory where it had been for so many years. It persisted. He got a beer from the refrigerator, but before he had opened it, his phone rang. His father was on the line. Trevor, your mother's had an accident. They took her to St. Vincent's Hospital there in Portland. I'm on my way in. His voice was ragged, shaky with fear. Call Cody and meet me there. Emergency room. Dad, what happened? What kind of accident? How bad? Car, he said. That's all I know. They just called. Meet me there. The microwave was dinging when he ran from the house. At the hospital, the admitting nurse consulted with someone on the phone, then said, Doctor says you can see her for just a minute or two. They're prepping her for surgery. After that, please stop by again. There's some paperwork to take care of. That started what he considered a night in hell. His mother had been barely conscious, already sedated. Her eyes had flickered a moment when he said he was there. She mumbled something, and he leaned in closer to hear when she repeated it. Tell Cody... I'm sorry. Nothing more. She had gone to surgery before his father arrived, and together they had waited throughout the long night.
head injury, internal injuries, a broken collarbone. When she came out of surgery, they took her to the ICU, and only his father was permitted inside the tiny room, filled with machines and tubes, monitoring screens, and then only for a few minutes at a time. Mid-morning, he thought, almost with surprise. His father was slouched in a chair, his eyes closed, although he was not sleeping. Trevor thought he was praying. Dad, I'm going to Cody's apartment. I'll find him and get him in here. His father nodded silently. Trevor had called Cody's cell phone and left messages twice with no call back yet. He couldn't tell if he was more angry with his brother than afraid for his mother, who had not regained consciousness. He drove across town fast, cursing under his breath. Cody lived in a studio apartment that was as barren and tidy as a barracks. Boxes lined one wall, a futon, one chair, a small television, two chairs at a table that held stacks of papers, letters, and bills, with barely space for a plate. A microwave on a counter, a small refrigerator and sink were all it contained. Trevor's glance about was swift, then lingered on the table. Cody's wallet was there, and his cell phone. What the hell? he muttered, picking up the wallet. It had a few dollar bills, credit cards, other cards. He tossed it down and began to look through the papers, then stopped when he came to a deposit slip for Cody's credit union. He had deposited $25,000 five days earlier. Jesus, what's he into? He had just started going through the rest of the papers when the doorbell rang. He raced to the door and yanked it open. Jean backed up a step. Cody? Cody McCrutchen? The man looking at her was tall, reddish-brown hair, blue eyes, probably about the right age. She shouldn't have come, she thought. What if he had completely forgotten what happened at the pond that day? He'd think she was a nutcase or something. She backed up another step. No, I'm his brother, Trevor. He isn't here. What do you want with him? She shook her head. I'm sorry. Sorry to bother you. I I just wanted to tell him something. Sorry. She was young, with nearly black hair and a ponytail, big, dark eyes, and she looked almost haggard with dark shadows under her eyes. He started to close the door, hesitated, then said, You want to leave a message for him? She was afraid, he thought, looking at her more closely. Afraid of Cody? Obviously she didn't even know Cody. Nothing, she said. It's nothing. Almost inaudibly, she added, I'm sorry. I wanted to tell him I'm sorry. She turned to leave. He caught her arm. Wait a minute. What do you mean? Who are you? His mother's message, tell Cody I'm sorry, sounded in his head. Jean Biondi, she said, jerking away from his hand on her arm. I used to know Cody a long time ago. Jean, stop. Wait a minute. Have you heard from him recently? Do you know where he is? She shook her head. Then why are you here? Sorry about what? Something that happened... A long time ago, she said in a low voice, when we were both just kids, six years old. I did something I'm sorry about. I... 
I thought I should tell him I'm sorry. I had a dream about it or a flashback, something that made me remember, and I wanted to tell him. Trevor opened the door wider. Jean, please, come in. We should talk. I had a flashback about him, too. He felt his legs burn and his hand was shaking. Almost against her will, she nodded. Would it be enough to tell his brother? Make the screams stop? Let her sleep again? Make it all go away again? She went into the apartment with Trevor. They sat at the kitchen table and she recounted the incident at the pond with her eyes downcast, her hands clenched in her lap. He got her a glass of water. It won't go away, she said in a low voice. I keep hearing him screaming. Jesus, he said, sitting across from her again. I keep feeling as if my legs are burning. He told her about the firecrackers. I was fourteen, he said. Cody was ten. He thought I was beating him up for taking my firecrackers. He was crying, begging me to stop. What's happening? she whispered. I don't know. This is crazy. And I don't know where he is. I've got to find him. Our mother's in critical condition. A car accident. He stopped and a wave of fear washed over him. His voice dropped to a harsh whisper as he said, The police officer who told us about it said she didn't try to stop. No skid marks. She just drove straight off the road, sideswiped a tree, went down an embankment and rolled over. She didn't even try to stop. Just before they took her up to surgery, she said to tell Cody she's sorry. The color drained from her face as he talked. You think it happened to her? A flashback or something? I don't know what to think. They said I was like a statue with smoke rolling out of the oven more than ten minutes. The timer was set for ten minutes. I didn't dare it go off. Didn't smell the smoke. Nothing. I was in a chair. No memory of getting to a chair. Nothing, she whispered. I don't know how long I was like that. Just nothing. For a time, neither spoke again. Then Trevor rose. I have to go back to the hospital. I'll leave a note for Cody. He wrote his note on the back of an envelope and stuck it into the wallet so that most of it showed. She stood, clutching the chair back. What if it happens again? While you're driving, while I'm driving. He looked at her bleakly. Yes, he thought. He believed his mother had had a flashback, too. Like a statue behind the steering wheel, the road ahead gone, everything gone, just a blank, and now she was in intensive care. We should stay together for now, he said, just for now, until we know what's going on. Whoever is driving has to keep talking. If I stop talking or you stop, take the steering wheel, put on the brake. What? Back streets, no freeway, drive slowly. Grab the steering wheel and the handbrake, he said hoarsely. Would that be enough? He didn't know. Come on, let's go. Grace watched Edward Markham as he made his way awkwardly to the sofa with its pretty green cushions and sat down. After he was seated, she took one of the comfortable chairs on the other side of the coffee table. He's stable, 
No change, she said. Tomorrow I'll start the recovery period. I want to see him as soon as he's awake, he said. No, Mr. Markham, he'll need two days to recover, and after that, four to six days, perhaps even a little more time, for the same physical tests he had before the procedure, and the same psychological tests. Until that is done, no visitors, no outsiders will be allowed. I want to see him, as soon as he can talk. I won't permit that, she said levelly. This is my field, Mr. Markham, my regimen, and I will decide every aspect of this procedure, which I just outlined. You will not see him until I say so, and that will be in from seven to ten days from today. His eyes narrowed, and his pasty complexion darkened. He looked very ill, more so than the previous week, as if his disease was worsening rapidly. He was off his medication, she knew. After looking over his list of medications and supplements, she had told him he had to stop taking anything. Too many of them could cause a fatal reaction with the drugs she would infuse when the time came. She had hoped the fear of the consequences of stopping medication would dissuade him. She had explained the parameters to him, temperature, medications, infusions of electrolytes, hydration. They could only be changed one by one, not in a cluster. She felt certain the temperature was correct, and changing anything else meant another waiting period for observation of the effects. Minute changes, incremental changes. It had to be the drugs. She knew the effects of temperature change. Too cold, death. Too warm, not enough drop in metabolism, either death from hypothermia or brain damage. And he had his own parameters. Stop medications too soon, too abruptly, without supervision. A rapid deterioration in his illness. He had cursed the parameters, hers and his. She hoped he would die before that young man was released back into his life. You're playing a dangerous game, Markham said gratingly. You forget your place here, Dr. Wooten. I forget nothing, she said. He has to be in a totally neutral environment when he wakes up, an environment untainted by any outside influence, by any emotional outburst or inappropriate questions, We don't know how vulnerable he will be, how susceptible to fear or intimidation, or demands for answers he may not be able or ready to provide. I can ensure that environment. You cannot. What fear? What intimidation? I just want to see him, make sure it worked. It's my life at stake here. She rose from her chair. Your fear of death, Edward Markham. Your bullying. Her answer to his question remained silent. If you'll excuse me, I have work to do. Please do not return until I call you. There is nothing you can see here that has any meaning for you. There is nothing for you to do at this time. His expression was venomous as he laboriously pulled himself upright. So, fire me, she thought. If this test failed... If there was even a hint that the young man was damaged and she refused to proceed with Markham, he would fire her. 
She suspected that he already had someone else in mind to take over in that event. But not yet. Now he needed her. He understood that it would take time for a replacement to catch up, to learn enough to take the next step. Later, she would not care. If it worked, she would publish, and she would quit, write a book, sleep. Later, she would sleep. After Markham was gone, she stood at the side of the cold waterbed for a short time. Sleep well, she thought. Pleasant dreams. One more night, just one more night for you, my young friend. Then, soon after that, perhaps I can sleep well and have pleasant dreams. Jean sat in the hospital coffee shop waiting for Trevor, thinking of all the things he had talked about on the way to the hospital. He was an electrical engineer, divorced. His ex had taken off for Los Angeles, leaving him the house and mortgage, taking all the money, about growing up at the orchard, how he and Cody had fought, played together, fished, hiked, monthly poker games with pals, books he liked, music. It had been a long, slow drive, and he never had stopped talking. She had called his mother the day before to get Cody's address, and she had spent the rest of the day accepting that she had to find him, then denying it. Back and forth all day, Mrs. McCrutchen had been cheerful and claimed to remember Jean. She had been pleased to tell her where he lived. She might have had a heart attack at the wheel, Jean thought, not a flashback at all, but a heart attack or a stroke or something, and they had nothing to fear about driving or swimming or anything else. Strange memories surfacing didn't have to mean anything else, just memories. Lying about it didn't help, she thought with a soft groan. Thinking about it didn't help either. Where had Cody gotten $25,000? She visualized his apartment, almost monkish in its barrenness, and boxes and boxes of books stacked against the wall, unopened, unread for more than two years. Trevor had talked about that, too. Cody and his girlfriend, together for three years, had split. He was in graduate school, Trevor had told her, talking, talking about whatever came to mind. She wanted to get married, start a family, but money was too tight, and he wanted that graduate degree, horticulture. He broke it off after one big fight too many, I guess. It was a bad time. He dropped out of the program and bummed around for a couple of years, and just a year ago he started to save to go back. God, I hope it wasn't drug money. Anything. Almost anything but that. Thinking about it, she shook her head. He wouldn't have deposited it in the bank, not if it was from drugs. It had to have some legitimacy to be so open about it. That might be a start, a way to find him. Tell him she was sorry. Abruptly, she stood. Not again. Don't play that over again. There had been a newspaper stand in the lobby, she remembered, and went out to get something to read. Something else to think about. She took a newspaper back to the cafeteria, got coffee, and sat in a booth trying to read one article after another, as if she were back in school, cramming for a test. Finally, Trevor joined her. How is she? 
Stable, a little improved, they said. They put a reclining chair in for Dad so he can stay with her. He won't leave and I can't go in, so here I am. Want some pretty bad coffee? He shook his head, then craned to see the article and photograph below the fold. She had read it. A local woman had hanged herself. Trevor's face turned ashen and he snatched up the paper. You know her? Elise Bronstein, he said. Good God! Elise! He let the newspaper fall. She was Cody's girlfriend. She attempted suicide after the breakup. Jean stared at him in horror. You think she. like your mother? Like you and me? Let's get the hell out of here, he said raggedly. Back in the car, he sat with both hands clutching the steering wheel, staring ahead blindly. I saw her a couple of months ago. She was happy with a guy, thinking about getting married. She and Cody, always stormy, fighting the last six months or longer. I have to find him, he said. He could be hurt or something, like us, like my mother. He didn't add like Elise, but Jean did in her head. Let's go back to his apartment, find out who gave him all that money. He must have a checkbook, someplace where he recorded the deposit. Online banking, maybe? He started the engine. Keep talking, Trevor. Tell me about him, about Cody. Did you two keep in touch? Driving very slowly, keeping to side streets through neighborhoods she had never seen before, he talked about his brother. He was a daredevil as a kid, never afraid of anything, and smart, smarter than me. He wants to make a difference in farming, soil management, or something. Or he did before he dropped out. He was devastated when Elise attempted suicide, blamed himself. We were planning to hike up in the Olympic wilderness in August, looking forward to it. Most of his rambling was meaningless, Jean thought, just random thoughts. Memories of a man who loved his kid brother. They talked every week or so, and Cody had a cell phone. She made a mental note of that. They emailed each other more often than they talked. Another note there was a computer in that little studio apartment. They could search files or something. He worked as a groundskeeper somewhere, just another of a series of go nowhere jobs while he tried to accumulate a little money before he got back in school. He had not been willing to take a real job with a real commitment. He wanted to get back on his own track, finish what he had started. He had not mentioned going away, leaving. Trevor was in the middle of another bit of trivia when he pulled up to the curb outside Cody's apartment building and stopped talking. Made it, he said after a moment. Jean, are we being stupid? No. She said, We are not. Let's find his computer and see what's on it. Maybe find a cell phone, check recent messages, find out where he worked. Someone signed paychecks for him. Find out if he turned up at work this week. Like you said, we have to find him, get to the bottom of this. It seems as if everything going on revolves around him, one way or another. Good thinking, he said. I've been too busy talking to think about a thing. I've never talked so much in such a short time in my life.
Let's go in. Inside the dreary apartment, Jean checked the refrigerator that proved to be almost as barren as the furnishings of the place. No vegetables, no milk, no perishables. She searched pockets for a cell phone as Trevor began to search the files on a laptop that he had found under a lot of papers on the table. Jean found the cell phone and his checkbook in a windbreaker pocket. An hour later, they considered the meager results of their searches. You worked for a company called Markham Enterprises, Trevor said. They're into a lot of different things, but primarily land development. Somewhere they have property that requires a regular crew of groundskeepers. <sighs> He drew in a long breath. And that big check apparently was paid to him by the company, signed by Markham. That's all he entered in his checkbook, just Markham. She nodded. I think he knew he'd be gone for more than a few days. And he cleaned out his refrigerator. Go away and leave his wallet, his cell phone, laptop, checkbook? It doesn't make any sense, Trevor said. You take ID, if nothing else, even if you've gone camping. His camping gear is in the closet. She felt as helpless as he looked. Hesitantly, she said, Maybe you should notify the police, make a missing person report or something. He thought about a $25,000 check recently deposited and shook his head. He could be in real trouble. Something he wouldn't want the police to know about, he said in a low voice. Scare my dad even more than he is now. Not yet. Maybe later, but not yet. Is his car here? He sold it, said it was an expense he could do without. He uses a bike to get around. He jumped up. I didn't think to check it out. Wait here. He hurried from the apartment, returned a minute later, and said flatly, It's chained to the rack. Someone came to get him. He must have emptied his pockets and left with him. He looked about the apartment, crossed to the table, and snatched up Cody's cell phone. Let's get out of here, he said. What are you going to do? Let's go to my place, get something to drink. I'm going to call every number in his address book. Someone has to know where he is. He wouldn't have walked out with a stranger. After another hellish drive with Trevor talking all the way, they were on his patio drinking iced tea. No alcohol, Jean had said. He had to go to the hospital by five to check on his mother, relieve his father, let him leave her long enough to take a walk, eat something. If anything happens, she had said, turning down beer, a mixed drink, you know, they shouldn't smell alcohol. Now he was making another call. She listened to the one-sided conversation dully. Nothing. No one knew anything. He disconnected and put the phone on a table. I'll finish later, he said. I have to go. I'll finish calling later. He drained his glass and stood. Jean, why don't you stay here? I'll get a cab. You can rest. She jumped up. No, I don't want to be alone. Stay together. You said that we should stay together. She heard the panic in her voice and drew in a long breath. I'll drive this time. We should take turns. Trevor, I don't want to be alone. Not yet. He examined her face, nodded. Yeah, we should stay together for now. Let's go. 
He sat with his eyes closed as she drove and talked about whatever came to mind. She had been an interior decorator. The company tanked and she lost the job, got hired by someone called Lizzie, a fabric shop. She liked to ski. Her voice faltered and stopped and he said quietly, Keep talking, Jean. She started again. I thought I had wet myself, but I hadn't. When I took off my snow pants, I was dry. He was wet, not me, but I felt wet and ashamed. Keep talking, he said again in a strained voice. He had felt his legs burning, Cody's legs burning. You're doing fine. We'll be there in a few minutes. Her mouth was dry, but she had felt wet that day. She talked without any real awareness of what she was saying. Now and again she glanced at him, now and then caught him glancing at her. Again in the coffee shop, this time with a book. She was prepared to wait a long time for him to return, and that day at the pond played in her head the sensation of being wet, freezing cold and wet, screaming. She wanted to scream and bit her lip, forced herself to look at the open book she held, and could not remember what she had read. She started over. Finally, he came to the booth and slumped into the seat opposite her. She's a little better, he said, breathing without the ventilator. If the improvement continues through the night, they might move her to a private room tomorrow. Still critical, but better. Your father? How's he doing? He went out to eat, but he won't leave again tonight. Ready to drive? It was worse for him, she knew. His mother in critical condition, missing brother, worried about his father. It was a lot worse for him. He looked exhausted. They both were exhausted. She had not slept well for nearly a week, and he had not slept at all the night before, and little the night before that. They walked silently to the car, and she got behind the wheel and started. Driving on Sandy Boulevard, dreading the bridge ahead because bridges were suddenly frightening, talking about nothing, making noise, that's all it was, making noise, she glanced at him. He was staring straight ahead, not moving, unaware that her voice had stopped. She hit the brake. Trevor, are you all right? Trevor! A car horn startled her, and she signaled for a turn onto the first side street she came to. Midway down the block, she was able to pull in at the curb. Trevor, please wake up! She undid her seatbelt, twisted around to shake him. He did not respond. She drew back, staring at his immobilized figure. He was sitting upright, his gaze fixed, unmoving. Without warning, she began to weep, to sob, with her head against the steering wheel, clutching it hard with both hands. Her paroxysm of sobs eased, and she groped in her bag for tissues. They couldn't be alone, she thought in despair. They would need keepers, attendants, be put away in institutions. No more jobs, never alone unless sound asleep. No more driving, or skiing, hiking. No more life. She leaned back, closed her eyes, and waited for him to wake up, to come back. She didn't know how long it took before she sensed that he had moved, pulled against his seatbelt or something. He made a choked sound, almost a sob. 
She reached for his arm, and this time he turned toward her with a strangely blank expression. Snap out of it, she said. It's okay now. You're okay now. He blinked rapidly, rubbed his eyes, then said, Again. I did it again, didn't I? It's over now. Are you all right? Jesus, he said. Drive, Jean. Get back to my place. I'm okay now. In a lower voice, as despairing as her own thoughts were, he said, It happened. Again. End of part one. There you go. Don't forget, copyright most certainly is, Kate. Again, like part two will be coming next week. Kate, thank you so much. Sue, thank you so much. And Amy H. Sturgis, thank you. And thank you for proofing my little few words the other day as well. Amy, you're a star. Thank you. Next up is our very own Paul Finch. Theatre of the Mind, Paul, sir. Okay. Having confidently said last time... Now, next time I'll be looking at... I now find there is no information available. Even Wikipedia has let me down. And as Tony insists on calling this a fact article, what to do? Well, the fact is, a piece of information about circumstances that exist or events that have occurred... And an article is non-fictional prose forming an independent part of a publication. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm just playing for time. Well, the best I could do is boot up my favourite combined spell checker and thesaurus, the wonderful Freeware Word Web, and rehash the old-time radio researcher's introduction to the series. But instead, I will just play the original. So here is Doug Hopkinson to make me look bad. Produced circa 1950 by Palladium Radio Productions, The Planet Man is the Golly G. Willikers saga of Dantro, an intergalactic troubleshooter for an organization known as the League of Planets, the law enforcement body for peace and justice in the celestial world. Think of him as an outer space version of Marshal Matt Dillon. It's a chancy job and it makes a man watchful. With their center of operations situated on Planaria Rex, the capital of the planets, the League sends their water carrier Dantro out into the celestial world to maintain law and order whenever danger threatens the universe. Dantro is assisted in his quest for law and order by the members of Earth's first rocket expedition, Dr. John Darrow, his daughter Pat, and Engineer Slats, who are rescued by the planet man before their rocket comes perilously close to crashing into the moon. The explanation for this is that Darrow and the crew took on a pair of stowaways before the blast-off, namely his nephew Billy and niece Jane. These five individuals join forces with the Planet Man to defeat evildoers like Marston, the ruler of Mars who possesses an insatiable appetite for interplanetary domination. Background on the Planet Man is sketchy at best. Even with the original discs close at hand, various sources date its syndicated run around 1952 to 1953, but specific air date information remains unknown. Palladium transcribed a total of 78 15-minute episodes for afternoon broadcast, but only 76 episodes are known to exist today. The first and fourth installments likely contained on a single audition disc are missing and have never been located. The cast of the series also remains shrouded in mystery. 
The only known cast members are Phil Tonkin, the announcer, Joseph Boland, the voice of the robot characters, and John Gart, the organist, whose theme song is a cross between Dragnet and the FBI in Peace and War. The Planet Man is a graduate of the Space Patrol Tom Corbett Space Cadet School of Old Time Radio Drama, serving up plenty of breezy, not-to-be-taken-seriously adventure fun. Marston is a great megalomaniacal comic villain, very similar to the bad guys in the Columbia Studios serials who are always griping about their bungling subordinates and their inability to follow orders. But the series utilizes other colorful villains as well, particularly a pair of Brooklynese these Dems and Doe's space pirates named Slick and Blackie, who sound like refugees from a Monogram B gangster pick. And yet the series showcases ideas that will be used later in other classic sci-fi films. One particular storyline echoes the Cold War paranoia of the invasion of the body snatchers, in which the nefarious Marston manages to dehumanize Dantro and the others with his handy-dandy hypno-ray. Right, that's 3 minutes and 41 seconds, and Tony says around 15 minutes. So, 11 minutes, 19 seconds to fill. Hasn't the weather been variable? I don't know what to put on when I wake up. Have you seen the price of cheese? It's gone through the roof. Oh, come on, Tony, don't look at me like that. I'm doing my best. Oh, sooty. Oh, I know. For the last couple of months, I've been working my way through CBS Radio Mystery Theatre. Now, whilst, whilst most of this series is in Tales to Terrify Territory... Tales to Terrify Territory... Tales to Terrify Country... There are a few sci-fi stories scattered through the vast number of episodes available. Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. Although many of these are by non-science fiction writers, you know the sort of thing. It's obvious they don't know the difference between interstellar and intergalactic. Some of the better episodes include number 484, The Walking Dead, an android's quest for emancipation, and whether is the place for him in the global society. They call you Rex? Yes. I am Harry. That one is Jimsy. Yes. Why is your owner so nervous about you? I'm sick. How are you sick? I break my conditioning. That is impossible. It has never happened. It happens to me. How? Why? I don't know. All I know is there's just the two of us, the master and me. I work for him and take care of him. We all do. That is our mission. I have to think for him and decide for him. And that creates a need in me. A strangeness that I cannot understand. Were humans made to create us? Are they the link in evolution between dumb beasts and the android? That is impossible. How could humans ever create anything as perfect as the Andy? We are produced by the perfection of laboratories. But men run them. They say so. But I do not believe it. Men have no logic and no truth. 
They have something that we do not. They are afflicted with glandular disorders. They call emotions. 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 Yes. Uh... The story was written for the series by Alfred, Alfred Bester, as is the next story, Future Eye, number 499. Assisted by a cheeky computer link, a temporal investigator returns to the present from the 29th century to retrieve a data crystal containing the future history of the world for the next 800 years. Episode 700, The Time Fold, a group of passengers aboard a private flight encounter a freak storm which should but does not kill them. Instead, they find themselves tumbling in orbit around the moon a thousand years in the future. This stars Fred Gwynn, who you may know better as Herman Munster. He was a regular member of the cast, and as I've only previously known him from the Munsters, I was impressed by his range. We're in free flight. I don't know how. But somewhere we spun right through a hole out of the atmosphere and ended up in space. Are you nuts? If you had just one point of reference after a blind flight, what would you guess the only land mass we could see might be? Where? About 10 o'clock, right off to the left. We were only at 33,000. That couldn't beat the Earth, no. No way. Ah, but you know what it is just as well as I do. The moon. Yeah, that's just what I read. Look at the configuration. But, but that, that, that's crazy, Chad. What are we, dreaming or dead or what? I think we're in free orbit around the moon. Come on, how? From 33,000 feet to nearly 90 million miles in one second, how? Maybe it wasn't CAT after all. Maybe we just fell through a hole in space, got folded up in the time warp. Whatever's happened, we got to get busy. First, there's too much pressure in this cabin. We've got to release it before we just plain disintegrate. Okay, Ken. Why not stay? Take it easy, real slow. Roger. And not too much. We have to hang on to all the oxygen we have. What for, if you're right? Oh, we're with now is the insurance. Uh, episode 800, Identified Flying Objects. An alien lands in a big city with a message for Earth. Vor e amana. As he looks like us and doesn't seem able or willing to say anything more than vor e anama, no one takes him seriously. A judge hands him over for psychiatric treatment. Who's the arresting officer? Patrolman Maxwell Pinchot, traffic Z, Your Honor. Now, what kind of a summons is this, officer? You don't designate the year, the make, the model of the car? Uh, Your Honor, I could not determine that information. Now, what kind of an answer is that, officer? All these facts are clearly stated in the registration. Uh, he don't have any registration. What? What kind of a case have we got here? A man is arrested for blocking traffic? To begin with, we don't know what kind of a car it is. Secondly, we Excuse don't... me, Your Honor, but I wouldn't exactly swear it was a car. You wouldn't exactly swear it was a car. Well, what kind of vehicle was he using to block traffic? A truck? No, Your Honor. I would say it looked more like a, a flying saucer. A what? A flying saucer. Officer Pinchot, are you a well man? Yes, Your Honor. Mentally? I believe so. You know, and I know, there's no such thing as a flying saucer, as a matter of fact. It is. Well, then how could that vehicle be a flying saucer? Well, I didn't say it was a flying saucer, Your Honor. I said it looked like a flying saucer. 
Very well, let's begin all over. What's the defendant's name? He wouldn't tell me his name. What kind of an answer is that? His, his name has to be on his driver's license. Oh, he don't have a driver's license. What kind of... Who is the defendant? It's him, Your Honor. Well, now, what kind of way is that for him to dress? What kind of courtroom do we have here where a, a man can come waltzing in wearing his nightgown? What's your name? He won't answer that, Your Honor. Please remain silent, officer, and give him a chance to answer. <clears throat> What's your name? Vul E. Amana. There you are. That's his name. Vuri Amana. All right, Mr. Amana. <clears throat> now we're getting somewhere. Where do you live? Vuri Amana. What have you got to say for yourself? Vuri Amana. Yes, yes, we know that. We've been there. Now we have to move on. Now let's have your story. Vuri Amana. You speak English? Vuri Amana. Well, do you speak any other language? Vuri Amana. Let's get some interpreters up here. Episode 840, Arctic Encounter. Two American pilots on an Arctic patrol sight a downed Soviet plane. Suddenly their own aircraft mysteriously loses power and they too are forced down into the ice. Just what or who is responsible for this Bermuda Triangle of the North? Says Uncle Don, your Uncle Don. Hello, little friends. Hello. Where do you get all of this? <laughs> Research. You are a very deep person. Oh, what else is there to do up here but read? You had to try it, Chappie. Oh, I did try it. I actually read a book once. I wouldn't want to go through it again. <laughs> what time do you have? 1300 on the head. Mm, that's what I thought. Well, I wonder where they are. What could have happened to Ivan? Yeah, now that you mention it, what indeed? You don't see him, do you? Nope. At exactly 1300, he's supposed to be visible at 11 o'clock. No sign of him. Do we report it? Why should we? Tell me honestly, if we were to spot him right now, would we report it? Well, you know we would. Okay, tell me why. Well, you know why. Tell me. Because if we do spot Ivan, that's a happening. And if we don't spot him? That's a non-happening. Well, I'll tell you who would disagree with that. Who? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, now, don't bring your English friends into this thing. He once wrote a story in which every night this dog would bark. Now, you follow this? It's not all that hard. However, on this particular night, the dog did not bark. He didn't? He did not. Which is just as significant as what may be happening out here. In what way? Each day for the last 30 days on patrol, we fly by Ivan. Today, we don't. Why not? Okay, why not? I don't know. Could it be significant? Let's throw it at Dawson. Maybe we can ruin his day. White Rabbit, calling the Hutch. Is my Hutch. Come on in, White Rabbit. I have an unusual occurrence to report. Proceed, White Rabbit. The dog did not bark. That's it. What's it? That Spaskov two-motor observation plane we fly by over coordinates 3416 to 1300. Well, it's first time in 30 days that we haven't seen him. I thought you'd like to know. Well, I'll go put you in for the Legion of Merit. Thank you. Now, can you tell us a movie for tonight? Sherlock Holmes in the heart of the Baskervilles. This is a hunch over and out. <laughs> you know, I thought you must think we're crazy. In this outfit, if you're not crazy, you go crazy. 
Well, what do you suppose did happen to Ivan today? Episode 1051, Prisoner of the Machines. 1,400 captured prisoners of a future war are sent to a POW camp on a remote asteroid operated solely by machines. However, nobody bothers to inform their robot jail keepers when the war ends. Prison Asteroid 1 might have been a prison compound in any country, in any war. The muddy grounds were filled with prisoners and their non-human guards. There were to be 1,400 of us on that grim rock, where no walls or fences were needed to contain us all. The camp looked like a model of military penal institutions, with 26 neatly spaced barracks, a processing station, a mess hall, and administration buildings. There was a great complex that housed the oxygen-producing machinery, the hydroponic food factory, machine shops, spaceships' hangars. An intricate system of scanners covered every inch of the place, sending information back to the computer called SCAP. SCAP. Scanning, control, and movement of prisoners. Machines. Lousy bunch of bolts. Maybe they can fight, but they can't outthink us. Can you, Major? Well, maybe not. But we are the prisoners, Private. Yeah, but not for long. Not for me, anyway. Attention! All prisoners will file by counter A. Take one PSC and slap it about his wrist. Repeat. Prisoners will take one PSC from counter and slap about wrist. Prisoners failing to wear their PSC at all times will be turned off. Turned off? Do they mean killed, Major? I guess that's what they mean. So you wear that thing, Private. Yeah, but... What is a PSC? Personal speaker command, so the Macs can deliver their commands to us individually or collectively. Prisoners will remove clothing and place in disposal bin. Prisoners will then pass through disinfection room and receive clothing ration. Any prisoner causing unnecessary delay will be turned off. The CBS Radio Mystery Theatre has its own website, a complete collection of the 1,399 MP3 episodes, including synopses and details of the actors and writers. It's at cbsrmt.com. Well, that's the end of episode five of Theatre of the Mind. In number six, I will be... Oh, hang on. No, you don't catch me twice. You'll have to wait for the download. The Radio Mystery Theatre ended like this, and tales to terrify listeners may notice a similarity. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theatre for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. And there you go. And you know what's funny? <laughs> when I first first got talking with Paul and we did this, and I did the first show, and I played Paul's first article, I'm sure I call it Hetter of the Mind because I didn't, couldn't understand what Paul was saying. <laughs> and if you look now, we type in theater, that Hetter of the Mind is the top hit on Google. Sorry, Paul. You'll have to change it. There's links on there. I'll put some links on there for Paul as well. Next up, and finally, we have a little promo. With tooth and nail.
with gun and blade. I've come. So begins the eighth battle hymn, a biofeedback device agent Joseph recites daily. As the newest recruit of the paramilitary cult Kivo, Joseph has pledged his life to battle cancers of the body of mankind. The group hunts everything from insane telekinetics to mimetic pathogens. Through every mission, Joseph will rely on the support and guidance of the man who once saved his life, Master Agent Burke. But when his mentor is forcibly inducted into the all-as-one hive mind, Joseph and the organization he reluctantly served will have to face their most dangerous enemy yet. Kimo, How I Learned to Kill by J.M. Perkins. Support it on Kickstarter today. There you go. Again, I'll put a link on to that. Do pop over to the little site, little site, Kickstarter site, and try and get it off the ground. Well, that is it. How often do you get a Kate Wilhelm story? Not often. Starship Silver's done that. Thank you. Look out for part two next week. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of helped put this show together. We are getting bigger by the day. <laughs> Very big soon. Don't forget if you want to narrate for Starship Silver or you want to help the old birds keep going. Donations and everything else. Just stop, uh, drop us an email. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.